Thanks for listening to the PLR Podcast. I'm Alex. If you like what you hear, please follow us at PLR Pod. And thank you for those of you who already do follow us, who share our stories on Instagram and are listening to the episodes as we are getting used to all the technical aspects of podcasting, as well as uh, the uncomfortability of speaking into a microphone. Today I'm going to go over Rosa Luxemburg's article, Reform or Revolution. But before I do that, I wanted to say that I've been listening and reading to a lot of work about and by Rosa Luxemburg, and I've noticed that uh, while intellectuals, while, while theorists are talking about Rosa Luxemburg, they tend to refer to her as Rosa rather than Luxemburg, which is a little bit problematic in my opinion, because when we refer to the male theorists uh, or male car- counterparts of hers, where we refer to them by their last name. So it's Lenin, Trotsky, uh, Stalin, for instance. So in this episode, I'm going to do my best to refer to Luxembourg as such, because in my opinion, it gives her the respect that she deserves on, equal, uh, on an equal playing field with the other theorists. As any good historical document analysis of such should be, uh, we have to start with historical context, in my opinion. And I'm going to do this briefly so as not to bore you too much with the history, but um, the, the history of this article, in my view, stems all the way back to 1878 with what were called the anti-socialism laws in Germany. These laws were enacted by then-Chancellor of Germany Otto von Bismarck in his attempt to stifle the radical socialist movement and to try to impose uh, social welfare programs, social reform from above. This was his attempt at trying to maintain the aristocratic order of Germany at the time in order to undercut the success, undercut the appeal of the socialist movements. But in 1890, these anti-socialist laws were rescinded because there was a lot of protest against them, as you could imagine. So in 1891, social de- the Social Democratic Party in Germany, the leaders announced that they would uh, get together and try to theorize the new program for the socialist movement going forward. And they reaffirmed that the overthrow of capitalism definitely was and remained their goal, but that they had to go about it cautiously. And they had to focus first on the conditions available to them in the Germany that they were living in. At least there be another round of repressions. Certain members of the Social Democratic Party at the time started to tone back their revolutionary rhetoric in favor of a more legislative approach to social reform. Edward Bernstein is one of these uh, people who toned back his rhetoric, uh, and he believed that capitalism had progressed to a point where all socialists could do was to try to change the social conditions via legislative fiat. And so he believed that as a party, the socialists need to enter into uh, the German halls of government to try to reform it from within. And that's ultimately how you achieve uh, social revolution. Luxembourg's pamphlet here, originally published in 1899, was a reaction to Bernstein and the other reformists, and it argued that socialism can only be achieved through the self-emancipation of the working class through the act of revolution, through the political seizure of power. And this is a point where I think that even today, uh, the AOCs or the Bernie Sanders among us 
might disagree. I mean, it seems to me that these uh, more social democrats t today even view revolution, view change as happening through the legislative process. But in this article, Rosa Luxemburg is saying that's not enough. She's saying that in order for the revolution to actually happen, there has to be a political seizure of power in which the bourgeois state is overthrown by the working class entirely. I'm using the Dover publication version of this work, and so if you'd like to follow along with me, please do. Sometimes when we're reading texts like this, it can be difficult to understand everything that the person is writing about because the ideas are so complex. And so what I'm going to try to do here is go over not only the layout of uh, Luxembourg's article, but to also talk about the particular ideas that she goes over. And the first part of the pamphlet lays out the basic theses of Edward Bernstein, her opponent, the person that she's arguing against. And as you'll recognize with a lot of these left theorists at the time, this was a common strategy for writing against someone's ideas, to start with the particulars of their ideas so that later on you can shoot them down. And this is why a lot of these works tend to be pretty borderline insulting to each other. She starts by quoting Bernstein, who said that, With the growing development of society, a complete and almost general collapse of the present system of production becomes more and more improbable, because capitalist development increases, on the one hand, the capacity of adaptation, and on the other, that is at the same time, the differentiation of industry. So according to Bernstein, capitalism is impossible to, be overth to overthrow now because it's too capable of adaptation to the changes that are going on. So every time labor or the state throws something at capitalism, throws a new wrench into it, capitalism has this power to adapt itself. And so what Bernstein does is he goes over basically three aspects of adaptation that are evidence of his point. And the first one is the introduction of credit, which according to him extends production. Credit, according to Bernstein, eliminates the contradiction between production and consumption so that now people can buy things without getting paid enough to actually afford them. That means that production can continue to increase without affecting an increase in wages. The second point means of adaptation is what Bernstein calls employers' organizations or cartels. Together, these capitalist groups can put an end to the complete anarchy, and that's in quotes, of capitalist production by regulating prices and production together rather than independently. It also makes it easier for trade unions to win concessions if there are less alternatives for capital to turn to. And this, the trade unions are something for Bernstein that are very important for the social transformation that he envisions. The third point is that middle-sized enterprises or small businesses or medium businesses were disappearing and being eaten up by bigger enterprises, and that to Bernstein was evidence that capitalism was growing, that the monopolies of these big corporate entities was increasing. Luxembourg essentially flips these arguments against Bernstein in order to argue that revolution is the only true path towards socialism. She says that Bernstein fatally attempts to, quote, lift the program of the socialist movement off its material base and replace it with an idealist base. 
And you might be asking at this point, what in the hell does she mean by that? What does she mean by replacing the materialist-based with an idealist-based? And we'll get there, but let's see how Luxembourg discredits Bernstein first. So she'll go point by point of Bernstein's points, defeating what he's saying. And so, as we should, the first point is in reference to credit. And for Luxembourg, she's arguing that Credit actually aggravates all of the contradictions of capitalism that Marx pointed out. She says, quote, It aggravates the antagonism between the mode of production and the mode of exchange by stretching production to the limit and at the same time paralyzing exchange at the smallest pretext. It aggravates the antagonism between the mode of production and the mode of appropriation by separating production from ownership. That is, by transforming the capital employed in production into social capital, and at the same time transforming a part of the profit in the form of interest on capital into a simple title of ownership. It aggravates the antagonism existing between the property relations, that is, ownership, and the relations of production by putting into a small number of hands immense productive forces and expropriating a large number of small capitalists. Lastly, it aggravates the antagonism existing between the social character of production and private capitalist ownership by rendering necessary the intervention of the state in production. So credit, contrary to what Bernstein says, is not an example of capitalism adapting to current circumstances, but it's intensifying the antagonisms within capitalism between production and labor, between the capitalist and the worker. The second point, cartels, that Bernstein brings up. Luxembourg argues that cartels actually sharpen the struggle between the producer and consumer. And this means that monopolies, even if made from a conglomerate of companies, can become more susceptible to worker pressure because there are fewer of them to compete. So again, cartels are not a good example of capitalism adapting, as Bernstein argues. And three, the disappearance of middle or small enterprises also works against Bernstein because it works against the interests of capital. As Marx said, small enterprises, not big corporations, are the source of innovation. And so their disappearance means that capitalists, large capitalists, don't have the opportunity to assimilate, to adapt, to adopt maybe these new uh, small innovations. Luxembourg says, quote, if one admits that small capitalists are pioneers in technical progress, and if it is true that the latter is the vital pulse of the capitalist economy, then it is manifest that small capitalists are an integral part of capitalist development, and they will disappear only with capitalist development. In the next part of the essay, Luxembourg attacks the elements that Bernstein claimed could lead to a socialist transformation. She says these things are not enough in and of themselves. So she's admitting here that, yes, these are important things, but they're not enough in and of themselves for the type of revolution that uh, she and the Social Democratic Party envision. The first one that she brings up are trade unions. And of trade unions, she says, quote, trade union action is reduced of necessity to the simple defense of already realized gains. And even that is becoming more and more difficult. 
Such is the general trend of things in our society. The counterpart of this tendency should be the development of the political side of the class struggle. So contrary to what Bernstein says, who said that the goal is to strengthen the power of trade unions, Luxembourg is saying that trade unions are good and all, but at a certain point they start to just confirm or defend the concessions that are already granted to them from being taken away. Second point, if you put your faith in reformism, as Bernstein does, you're presupposing that progressive reform in the capital state are moving in the direction that you want them to, not the direction that Marx said by historical necessity it goes. She says, quote, But if this effort is separated from the movement itself and social reforms are made in end in themselves, then such activity not only does not lead to the final goal of socialism, but moves in a precisely opposite direction. Instead, you just get the concretization of the bourgeois state rather than its weakness. And three, finally, if reforms are made in end in and of themselves, then the goal of the social movement moves in the opposite direction, as we said, but workers do not control the means of production, but become increasingly socialized into capitalism. And this is what I mean by become that capitalism becomes concretized if you're just focusing on reform. As capitalism develops, so does its ties to the state. So without political revolution, the bourgeoisie only grows stronger. And to quote everybody's favorite quote from Rosa Luxemburg, only the hammer blow of revolution, that is to say the conquest of political power by the proletariat can break down this wall. They, only that can break down the propensity, the possibility of the concretization of the bourgeois state and its adaptation to labor. After taking down the evidence that Bernstein presents, Luxembourg moves on to critique his mode of thinking altogether. And again, as we're talking about um, the way that these old writers would attack each other, this is precisely the way to do it. Start by undercutting all of his smaller points and then look at it in totality and attack it that way. At the heart of the second part of this essay is a claim that Bernstein's, quote, opportunism strips scientific socialism's materialist base and replaces it with an abstract idealist base where rather than historical necessity of social revolution, Bernstein sees the realization of socialism in the possibility of making the poor rich. He fails to take into account the class struggle. In other words, Luxembourg here is saying that Bernstein is thinking in abstracts, that he's not thinking concretely about the economic conditions of society and the materialist base in the mode of production. And this is a fatal error for her, according to uh, according to Luxembourg and also to Marx's theory in general. About this, Luxembourg quotes Bernstein in total in order to point out this idealist base that she's talking about. She quotes him as saying, Why represent socialism as the consequence of economic compulsion? Which, as you can tell, is a direct contradiction to, to Marx, Marxism itself. He also says, why degrade man's understanding, his feelings for justice, his will? Luxembourg doesn't have time for this. She says that Bernstein's superlatively just distribution is to be attained thanks to man's free will. 
man's will acting not because of economic necessity, since this will itself is only an instrument, but because of man's comprehension of justice, because of man's idea of justice. Well, what a lot of wishful thinking. This is the idea that the capitalists, if given the opportunity, would willingly give up their wealth and their power if they were if they felt that it was the just thing to do. And I think that we all today know that that's just not true. According to Luxembourg, Bernstein's ideas rest on the opening of democratic institutions and the movement's ability to win representation in legislative bodies. But for Luxembourg, democracy itself offers no safeguard against the usurpation of power by capitalists. And part of the reason for this is, as we said, you have the concretization of capitalism occurring at the same time as wealth accumulation. And so uh, democratic institutions are only safeguarded with the victory of the working class, with the victory of the social, socialist struggle. In fact, she recognizes that world politics and labor dominate political life in states. And as such, the fate of democracy itself is bound with the socialist movement. The bourgeois state will increasingly abandon democracy in its quest for economic expansion. So democracy can only continue to exist with the political usurpation of power by the working class. And that's why the seizure of political power by the proletariat is so important for Luxembourg. She says, quote, legislative reform and revolution are not different methods of historical development that can be picked out at pleasure from the counter of history, just as one chooses hot or cold sausages. Legislative reform and revolution are different factors in the development of class society. They condition and complement each other and are, at the same time, reciprocally exclusive, as are North and South Poles, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. All right, so you might be asking, how does the proletariat seize power? When is the moment that the working class seizes power? And Luxembourg does not have an answer for you, actually. She says that there is no right time to seize power, so the notion of reform creating the conditions is utter nonsense. Sure, reform might be able to help, but at a certain point, through spontaneous act, the working class has to seize power itself. So the real danger for Luxembourg is that the opportunist impulse of Bernstein is failing to understand that capitalism will continue to develop and grow despite and alongside the reforms granted to labor by the bourgeois state. The bourgeoisie would never liberate the working classes willingly, but only offer concessions so long as it strengthened or expanded bourgeois power. This to her is why theory is important. The opportunists, from a lack of care of theory, a lack of attention, or maybe a lack of understanding fully theory, fall victim to a vulgar understanding of Marx, and by doing so, diminish the real socialist movement. Luxembourg says, quote, What appears to characterize this practice above all, this opportunism, a certain hostility to, quote, theory. This is quite natural, for our theory, that is, the principles of scientific socialism, impose clearly marked limitations to practical activity. Insofar as it concerns the aims of this activity, the means used at attaining these aims, and the method employed in this activity, 
it is quite natural for people to who run after immediate, quote, practical results to want to free themselves of such limitations and to render their practice independent of our theory. And so here she is arguing that Bernstein's reformism is an attempt to wrestle the socialist movement, to wrestle the working class movement out of the historical process that Marx had talked about. This is sort of like trying to take out a part of uh, Einstein, one of, Ein of Einstein's theory of relativity. You just can't do it. You don't have the same answer if you take out a part of it. In scientific socialism, the seizure of political power by the working class, as well as the bourgeois state, are seen as world historical dialectical processes. So, again, eliminating a part of the equation just means that you're going to end up with something different. You're not going to end up with what you want. You're not going to end up with the working class victory. Luxembourg's pamphlet was well received by the Social Democratic Party. And as far as this debate was concerned between her and Bernstein, the party's intellectual leaders like Karl Kautsky threw their support behind Luxembourg. So what are some takeaways that we might be able to extract from this reading? I have four, maybe four, three perhaps. Uh, the first one is that socialist revolution cannot come from legislative reform alone, but must accompany the seizure of political power by the working class. This Marxist idea is essential to the socialist movement. And I hate to tell you, but if you are bound by or if you have some kind of loyalty to the state as it exists and you think that the solution to our problems today is by legislative reform within the House of Representatives and the Senate and the President, you are not a good Marxist. The fact is that Marxist ideas promoted the political seizure of power which is different than the social and economic transformation through legislator. Two, democratic socialism is only half the struggle for working class ownership of the means of production. Legislation that favors workers is great and all, but at some point workers have to seize that political power. Three, the economic base, the economic conditions of society, are fundamental to understanding the historical progression of the working class struggle. So if I were to relate this to today, to our own predicament, and this maybe is the fourth point, maybe not, and particularly to the state of Rhode Island, I think the point here is that, yes, it's important to get local power within our state governing bodies, within the House of Representatives, within the Rhode Island Senate, but at a certain point, we need to pack those houses so that Rhode Island becomes an example of leftist power nationally, and so that we can help to initiate the larger process. But again, at a certain point, the goal would be the complete transformation of the state by the working class. And that requires, to a certain extent, revolution, which may make some people uncomfortable. This is political revolution. This isn't uh, just legislation that uh, taxes the wealthy. Although that is good, at a certain point, it's not enough. Thank you for tuning in to the half episode of the PLR podcast about Rosa Luxemburg's reform or revolution. If you have questions, I may have answers. You can message us on Instagram at PLRpod or shoot us an email at PLRpodcast1 at gmail.com. 
Again, thank you guys so much for listening, for tuning in, for following, for sharing everything we do. We really appreciate it, and we're really trying to get the best product out to you that we can. Thanks.